1995, I came to Hong Kong to make my fortune, and I found myself getting more and more addicted to a drug called crystal methamphetamine, or ICE, as they call it here in Asia. But I ended up in uh, clinical psychosis from my addiction, and just down this road, I was working for the 14K, which is one of Hong Kong's biggest triad families. I knew from the first time I tried it that I was addicted. Yeah, I also knew that I was going to have some very difficult years ahead. So I resolved to write a creed, but I'll read you the last few lines. Never be afraid of failure or of taking a fall. Just get yourself back up and get over that wall. For on the other side, you'll hear success call. It's waiting for you and it's having a ball. So massive hello to all our friends at home. Today I have the absolute delight of being joined by Claire Vosper. Claire hey. is the wife to Chris, Chris Vosper, who, if you haven't seen it, I really suggest you do, is watch the podcast I did with Chris. Fascinating guy, amazing history from the Royal Marines to flying uh, Apache gunships in Afghanistan. And Chris and Claire now run V-Force, which is, um, it's lots of things. And I won't try and sum it all up now, but basically let, let's, uh, let's call it a special forces driving experience. Very high octane stuff.
and uh, great on achieving your 200 mile run. Definitely. Yes. Well done. Yes, thank you. So for people watching that don't know, I, instead of celebrating Christmas with the family, I set out to run 200 miles instead. In the UK today, we have an estimated 5,000 veterans without a proper roof over their head. As such, to highlight this issue and to raise vital funds, on the 22nd of December, I will run 200 miles around this track. This is gonna be very boring. We're in awe of you as ever, definitely. Thank you. But mm. today, Claire, we, this, we're gonna do something unique. Um, yeah because no one's really ever asked me about my eating smoke memoir or my story in Hong Kong. Um, that might sound a bit random because I published that book, gosh, 10 years ago now. It was, a, um, well, let's just say what it is. It was an international bestseller. It was the number two book in Hong Kong at the time. Um, Amazing. Yes, thank you. I should get my <laughs> copy, shouldn't I? There we go, look. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> Mine's a bit crumpled though because it's been read twice. <laughs> oh well, that's, that's even better, Claire. Thank you. Oh, no worries. But but it's a funny thing. I won't even pretend to know why, but no one ever asked me about it. I mean, they say, Chris, I read your book, blah, blah, blah. A few people have kind of hinted in emails, oh, I've got loads of questions, but but like literally no one has ever said, what was this bit about? Or who was that guy? Or did you ever, 10 years later, I'm probably um, a, in a bit of a p better position to answer those questions because when I wrote Eating Smoke, so for people watching, it's Eating Smoke, One Man's Descent into Crystal Mess Psychosis in Hong Kong's Triad Heartland. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's basically the story of how I left the Marines as a carefree young man who thought I, the world was my oyster. I went to Hong Kong because a business I started really took off there. And within six months of being in Hong Kong, I was chronically addicted to crystal methamphetamine. I'd started to lose my mental health in a really big way. So we're talking psychosis. So a severe form of mental illness and almost like just happenstance I was going to say bizarrely but it's, it's actually not that bizarre if you live in Hong Kong but by happenstance one of the last jobs I got over there was working in a nightclub as a sort of doorman stroke bouncer and the club was run by the 14k triads which is nothing, you know, I don't try to make it any bigger than it is. In, 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 most, cr in most red light areas or gangland areas or nightclub areas, the businesses are run by the local mafia, whether you're in Turkey, Soho, Hong Kong. So, it, it, you know, or Pat Pong in, in, in Thailand, it, it's not a it's, it's no surprise for people that have traveled is what I'm trying to say. But it it did give me a unique perspective simply for the fact is I'm phasing in and out of clinical psychosis. So I'm seeing stuff that 
you know, maybe did happen, maybe didn't happen. But at the very least, my brain is trying to make sense of it in this, what at times was a, a, a sort of obscure, obscure way. And the way for anybody listening now to kind of summarize it, it's a little bit about like when you get enlightened for the first time as to sort of the ways of the world and that the shit you see on the news is just a, you know, complete facade. It's, it's the lie that the ruling elite put out to keep you in your place. But then of course you get all this Illuminati stuff that comes up that, that all can seem a bit bizarre. Well, that was what my life was like for six months in Hong Kong. I was reading the back of a book and the blurb on the back of the book was meaning something completely like esoteric to me, some deep, dark secret that I'd, there was some like scam going on. Well, there was a scam going on. The, the triads, for example, are obviously a, a conspiracy. Um, then it got to a point where I didn't even know if the whole of Hong Kong were in on this conspiracy. And then I'm thinking, is it, is it the whole world? Um, and then I happened upon this kind of crazy click in the nightclub area in Hong Kong of expats. So people like myself, Westerners mainly, but including Indians and, and Filipinos, of which are a, a big part of the Hong Kong population, that seem to be in on this triad thing. And just to show you how confusing it was for me then, but it still is now, when I wrote Eating Smoke about 15 years after the fact, I did a Google search on the foreign triad, trying to find out, has anybody written anything about this group of Westerners that worked for the triad? Well, obviously some did. I did. I was a doorman for them, right? Albeit that was the limit of my involvement. I wasn't like an assassin or a drug smuggler or anything like that. I was just a doorman on a club. But there were other people that clearly were more involved. Um, I've subsequently seen some of the banged up abroad episodes where mm. the triads would get people in Hong Kong. They'd load them up with gold bars, fly them out to Nepal. And I think they either went from Nepal on to like Japan or something. Um, so what I'm trying to say is this stuff does happen. 15 years after I wrote it, I've done this internet search and an article comes up about the foreign triad. And to say my jaw just dropped was, um, you know, an understatement. There was a guy, his name is Bill Sparrow. Um, he writes for the Asia Times Gazette, I think it's called. And he was in a club in Wan Chai and the way he describes it, it was most probably the club I worked in. It was quite a, quite a popular club that a lot of expats and Chinese drank in. And he's chatting to the bar girl and she's got a tattoo on her and she's Filipino herself. And he says, oh, what's the tattoo? And she's like, oh, nothing, nothing. He's like, no, 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 come on. What, what does it mean? He's, she said, oh, I used to be in the foreign triad. This isn't a book or anything. This is a, a, a newspaper article. Right. It used to be online. 
now it's disappeared online. You can only get it in, in Bill Sparrow's book. I've, I've seen it on, on Amazon. And so lo and behold, he's like, foreign trial, what's that? She said, oh, it's uh, just, it's like a group of us Westerners and, and Filipinos and Indians, blah, blah, blah. We run errands for the triad. So if people are wondering what sort of errands, well, I can tell you it will be, you know, drug selling, drug smuggling, diamond smuggling, um, getting girls in for prostitution in the clubs, which is, that's just not even like a secret. That's, you go into any club in Hong Kong, any club in the kind of Wan Chai, if it's not a Western owned operation, so like a European club, which is obviously just like a club, if it's a Chinese venture, you you'll get bar girls, right? That's that's it's not a secret. It's they have something called a number, which is their secret number. So when you're chatting this girl up and you're thinking, yeah, I, I've scored. No, she's telling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's telling the, the guy behind the bar. Yeah, <laughs> num number seventeen, and what what he's doing is he's writing down that number seventeen has got this idiot or this horny <laughs> serviceman to buy her like nine vodka and Coke so far, mm -hmm. of which she just drinks the Coke because she wants to stay sober and scam more people. And of course this guy's paying this extortionate price and she gets the commission. So Claire, I've, I've, I've said enough. I just wanted to lay the ground there for anyone who's not read my memoir. Um, and as I said before, like no one's really ever asked me about it. So this is kind of a first. Good. So thank Look you a lot. It. I and have I'll, a full page. Yeah, so I'll, I'll turn the floor over to you. And, and, and Yeah. The first comment I'd say is, I thought that was incredibly brave of you to write a memoir. And the reason for that is you're really opening yourself up to people. Um, your character comes across in it quite a lot obviously because it's been written by you that the words that you use your language that kind of thing is is obviously very much you um what motivated you to write it that was my first question very simple claire i wanted my 15 minutes of fame okay uh back in the, my, my drug like let's call it the crux of my drug issues went on for, for years, really. I, I'm not complaining. It's just the way I live my life. Um, let's say 50% was addiction. 50% yeah. was what I did. You know, it, it was like back in the nineties, if you went to someone's house, you sat down and rolled a joint. That was just yeah. everybody I knew did that. Right. Yeah, same here. Uh, if you went in a pub, my, my local had a bong on the bar. Yeah. You know, and if you wanted this, that or the other, you just spoke to that guy there. And within 20 minutes, you, it, it, Oasis were massive. You know, um, there was the famous um, spat between Robbie and Oasis and, and, and the Verve were huge. And so there was these massive musical influences um, that not only were famous for their music and their, their fashion, but they were also famous because they didn't hide the fact they took loads of drugs right yeah and i went through that era which is post hong kong so after my hong kong experience and i'll be honest like i wanted to be a guitarist in oasis or something right i really did almost like was gutted that i couldn't be up there singing and having all these adoring fans and 
Is this your guitar from Hong Kong, yeah? Oh, I don't... <laughs> that one snapped, actually. That's in my second memoir, 40 Nights. I talk about how that guitar snapped in half, but that's, that's another thing. Um, and I should point out, Claire, you've got to remember, I was young. I was in my 20s. I come from a very turbulent childhood. I didn't know my ass from male, but I just wanted to be loved like probably we all do. I didn't realise that that love is already in me from this beautiful universe we live in. This is what I talk about a lot now in my life coaching. You know, we don't need to go out and do this to prove ourselves or sing a song or write or whatever. But back then, I didn't know all this stuff. I just thought you've got to prove yourself. You've got to get adulation or whatever. So I thought, well, what can I do? Well, I can't play the guitar. Well, I tried. I can play a little bit. I'm a bit rubbish. Well, why don't I try and write a book? So I thought, well, what shall I write about? I thought, what about what happened in Hong Kong? That Could that be interesting? This is the thing, Clay. We live in a society that just fills us with self-doubt. Yeah. I was actually questioning whether an international bestseller, whether one person would want to read it. And here we are 10 years later, and, and it's meant so much to so many people. It's brought people together. It's brought me in contact with people. It's helped people to understand themselves. It's helped people to understand substance misuse and addiction. But there I am thinking, well, I guess if I write it right, by write it right, I just mean I wanted to put the reader in every single scene to understand what I was experiencing. Yeah, taking action. Um, if you want to change your life, you've got to start something. You've got, and you guys know this because you've started your own business. And you, you just, you just got to start something. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad or whatever, but you've got to start. And then you find a way. And off the back of starting to write Eat and Smoke, which I did do one night, I was very much the worse for wear, uh, which is a euphemism. I think people know what I'm talking about. I just thought, do you know what? I've got some skills. I'm, I'm going to put it to use. And it, it, the skills I had needed improving. I didn't know any punctuation, grammar, I learned the thing that they told you at school, like you put a comma when you breathe or some absolute nonsense, right? It's completely not where you use a comma. Um, I didn't know what, how to use a semicolon. I didn't know, I honestly didn't know which words are capitals and which aren't within reason. I thought, fireman, is that a capital F? Um, I, you know, stuff now that I laugh about that I can just write without thinking about it. I didn't know any of that. So... I wrote the manuscript, 240,000 words, so basically two books I wrote in five months. That's how keen I was. And once I started writing, I didn't need any substances or booze or whatever. I just had a cup of tea there. You smoke a lot of rollies, and I just wrote it, and that, that was it. Yeah. Um, so within five months, I had a huge manuscript, Within about three months of starting writing it, uh, my publisher, Pete, from Blacksmith Books in Hong Kong, phoned me up and said, hi, Chris, I'm the director of Blacksmith Books. Heard you're writing a Hong Kong story. Can we publish it? There was no, 
could you send us some or we'll check it if we like there's none of it. he was like I want to publish it just start just whatever it is you want to do start everything else you'll learn it will come to you the universe will give it to you but if you yeah. don't make that start you won't change your life and got it so you also you mentioned on the start of your book your true friend Rob Bailey who is he what's the story ah uh, Rob bless him it was like this when I I came back to the UK after a year and it was something like 14 months I spent in Hong Kong. And a lot of people think, oh, that was the end of my story. Like I recovered or whatever. I went to some rehab, which I've, I've never done. I probably, I probably should do, but I've never done. But no, it wasn't even the beginning of my pain. In fact, Hong Kong was, was an obscure form of fun. What I mean by that, Claire, is I worked in the nightclub district. I could go out to a club at three in the morning, four in the morning, five, and I'd know everyone in there. I'll be Chris the doorman and, and, and I'd dance all night with the Filipino girls, the, 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 the maids in Hong Kong. And it was, you, if you want- It's a good time out there. Uh, it was a tough time. <laughs> great time yeah it was hedonistic when I got back to the UK it was a different story I'm back in my two-bedroom house albeit a nice house but it wasn't Hong Kong you know it wasn't a Wan Chai gangland district it was like a suburban area of Plymouth I felt useless as a serviceman because mm. what was I trained for painting my face brown and shooting an SA80. Well, there's no, there's just no need for that. In, I can't see myself getting a job. I wouldn't know what to go for. I, I, I was chronically mentally unwell to the point where the doctors said to my dad, like, you should put him in a mental health facility and he probably won't come out. This is how bad it was. They, my family had to call the police or they called the police like three times in the first week of me being back from Hong Kong. They just didn't understand why I was behaving the way I was. To get to the point about Rob is I spent a year and a half chronically depressed. Uh, couldn't move off a sofa bed that I slept on in front of the telly in the front room smash my house up gradually bit by bit on various stupid hey you know I'm gonna build myself a a corner suite sofa today and it would just end up with me not just not building it but smashing up the sofa that I already had and leaving it in bits all over the house and this is just the confusion that, that amphetamine addiction causes I'm not trying to sell my books here folks but for anyone that's interested it's all in 40 nights that's my I next one. <laughs> yeah, I, I called it 40 Nights for a reason. It, it was like my time in the wilderness. Um, and it got so bad. It got with me scratching my skin because my skin was just itching so bad all the time that I thought I had lice or something. And it was, oh, yeah. I can't paint, Claire, uh, uh, an awful enough picture. Finally, there was one day when I'd been fixing my car. 
I bought this old banger of a Fiesta Super Sport. The head gasket was broken when the guy sold it to me, but he didn't tell me. I spent three nights in the winter under a tarpaulin that I set up, taking a head gasket off, grinding out the valves, putting a new head gasket in, resitting it, clamping it up with a torque wrench, connecting all the ignition leads, starting the engine, and it was... Three days I did that for, and on the third day, this car pulled up. And bear in mind, like I hadn't had friends for a year and a half now. Every everyone just they. And this car pulled into my road, and and the next thing I knew, my mate's looking under the bonnet at me, going, "All right, Chris." And it's my mate Rob. We we'd known each other since we were about five. Wow. And he said, "You all right, mate?" I said, "Not really, Rob." I said, can I come and stay with you? He's like, put that shit down, get in the car, let's go. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And they're the, they're the mates you need, aren't they? That's what yeah. you need. And he was just, it was just everything, Claire. It was like that military, he was in the army, so it was that military family thing coming back. It was the non-judgment. And he took me into his lovely house. He had a beautiful cottage on the on uh, uh, near the Barbican in Plymouth, which is the seafront area. And it was weird, clean carpets. I hadn't seen a clean carpet for years. Yeah. Uh, bathroom towels that they smelt like bloody fabric softener or whatever you call it. It was just weird. And he gave me all his clothes and said, "Chris, just put them on." And I knew at that moment, like my life had changed. And I said, thank you to Rob in my book. It's dedicated to him just because it's that one simple act of kindness. That's, I don't know. I don't know if I say it was saved my life, but, but it came at the right time. And I never looked back within a year. I was back traveling the world and working with children in Africa and, 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 um, and here I am today. I've achieved every every goal that I I ever set out to. And yep. had Rob not been there, it might have been. Kindness know. goes a long way, doesn't it? Yes. Okay. The next question I had. So going into the actual book and what happens. So I've got Daisu, the violent hand assassin. What was the story with him? So I rocked up in his club in Wan Chai the red light area, the gangland area, the disco area of Hong Kong. I'm looking for my, my mate. Glenn was the doorman on this club. And every time I was in there, I'd have a chat with him. And we just, it, we were, we both worked in a nightclub area. So you just become friends with everyone, basically. And I'm looking for a job. So I went to see Glenn say, do you know anyone that's taken on barman or doorman or whatever? And Glenn had gone to Thailand. I, I didn't know this. And this gentleman, let's call him, this Chinese gentleman in the club said, uh, you can do doorman job? I was like, yeah. Okay, start here tomorrow night, eight o'clock. <laughs> that was it. So I'm just delighted I'm back in work because Hong Kong's an expensive place you 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 back then 20 years ago whatever it was 25 you needed a thousand pound a month to keep your head afloat these days that would probably be what three thousand pound I'm, I'm guessing something like that so 
all I care about is I've I'm back in a job. I can pay my rent on a place that I've just rented. And I'm in there on the first night and I'm just treating it like any other job that I've had in the nightclubs. And I've, I've been the doorman on two nightclubs in Wan Chai now. This is the third. I've also been the DJ of a nightclub in Southern China, albeit short-lived. And on that first night in the club, I'm introduced to my two fellow doormen. They're both Chinese. I didn't think much of it. I'm sort of still young, naive Englishman. Like, oh, these will be good boys. They're, we'll watch each other's back. We'll go for a beer in the morning when we shut, whatever. And it wasn't until I got chatting to a guy at the bar who was over there working on the, the new airport, which is now an old airport, but it was brand new at the time. Um, and he said, Chris, you realise they're all triads? Well, you know, to say I had a fascination with the triads is an understatement. I think anyone that grew up in the Bruce Lee era <laughs> got an interest in all that stuff, Clay. The fighting, mm. the tattoos, the... And I'd always been fascinated by it. And the fact that there's this secret brotherhood in Hong Kong and, and China, but a secret brotherhood of these hard as fuck men mm -hmm. that all do the martial arts and they all communicate in sign language that you and I wouldn't even see or understand. And they all operate in the underground. I found that fascinating. And now I've just been told I'm working with these guys. And this guy here, uh, Daisu, was this, I think I said he was six foot seven in my book, but when someone's just pointed out to me, that's like really like basketball height. <laughs> <laughs> but he was tall for a Chinese. This guy was tall. And um, they said, yeah, your man Daisu there, he's, he's what they call violent hand, means assassin. Oh, right. Okay. I can't remember the Chinese I used in a book because I've never read my book. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've never read it. Read I, it. <laughs> yeah, I should do recommend. It I wrote it so long ago, right. I can't remember the Chinese, the Cantonese, but basically violent hand uh, is the triad slang for assassin. Wow. And the guy at the bar goes, yeah, every so often he disappears. They smuggle him into China. So across the border, he'll do a hit on someone and then they'll smuggle him back again. He wasn't like a ninja. He didn't dress in black or anything like that. He just dressed in a football shell suit top, lots of gold jewellery. And he was called Daisu and he was all right to me. Brilliant. Yeah, they don't have the Chinese <laughs> hat. He was all right to me. He, he, he kind of liked me. It was the other guy, Chu, Chu Chai. I can't even remember if that's the name I call him in the book. I did change it. Yeah. And the, this guy at the bar, this English guy goes, yeah, your man Choo Chai, he's called Magi. That's little horse in, in triad slang. That means runner, like errand boy, bottom of the food chain. But he will be as hard as nails fighter. And he said he might not look much, but he'll pick up anything in a scrap if he thinks he can do an enemy in with it, yep. which I then went on to see late, later on working with yep. this guy. And it was and just... I was picking something else. Yeah, um, they... It's just funny. Just a different attitude to fighting, Claire. Over here, we get in a fight in a pub or whatever. We're all like, right, okay, <laughs> come on, 
No, the first thing they do is look around for weapons. Yeah. What can I kill this person? How can I hurt this person really quickly, really badly? So they'll pick up a pen and they'll be stabbing you, literally wow. stabbing you with a... I saw someone stabbed with a mobile phone. Wow. In the early days of mobile phones, funny. I've not... None of us... Ex- Those Nokia's were pretty damn big. They were like bricks. I saw one triad just stabbed this other guy with a Nokia. Wow. Blood everywhere. And that, that was a bit confusing because I said in my book, after they fought... I then found a blood capsule on the floor. And in my state of mind, yeah. don't ask me what, I don't know. I, I honestly don't, I don't know. So, yeah. You also had your palm read and part of the palm reading said that you'd be happiest at 30. Did that happen? Already by 30, I, I think I was of the mindset, Claire, I'm the happiest man in the world. And I've always I've been that way ever since. So you also in your book met Brandon Block out in Hong Kong. I've met Brandon. I met him in Ibiza in 2008. He's an absolute legend. <laughs> He's hilarious, isn't he? <laughs> He's just an Such a big character. lovely man. He is. Right. The next one. So you pawned your beloved Rolex watch for 10,000 Hong Kong. Have you ever thought about what you'd have done if you hadn't had your watch? Oh, what a question. Yeah. Just serendipity, isn't it? It's a serendipity of life. It was okay. I'm I'm not a materialistic person, Claire. I mean, it, it was just a nice watch. And when I was in Hong Kong, I had to sell it. I have no idea. Yeah. Hey, next question. You talked about a Thai girl collapsing in the nightclub. She'd been standing with one of her girlfriends and chatting and everything else. And as they walked across the dance floor, one of them collapsed. Mm-hmm. And the way that the guys in the nightclub responded was basically throw her out in the alley. and you couldn't do that at the time. How did that feel? I've had my own experiences with Thailand. I've been out in Thailand before and the value of life out there is very different to the UK. Yeah. That must've been really tough. Well, it wasn't that it was tough. It's just that it was bizarre. I can have no anchor on it. I'm not yet getting to grips with the fact that cultures are different, Claire. For example, in this instance, this girl's friend, she was a Thai prostitute. She would rather this girl died than I found out that she collapsed from a drug overdose. Yeah. And I know it all sounds a bit random, but face is everything in Asia. In Asian culture, it's very taboo to be found out to be taking drugs. I mean, it's bad enough in the UK, even though everybody knows pretty much everybody does it, right? or, or or 70% of people will. It's all a bit weird. But in Asia, it's really taboo. And in certain, certain taboos in Asia, you just, an Asian person won't be seen to break them. They just won't. The, the face that they lose, like the public image that they lose by doing this act they just won't do it so in this instance when i'm saying to the girl has your mate been taking drugs she's going no 
<laughs> because in her mind, to admit that actually, yeah, she smoked ice, she's had an overdose, that would be the ultimate in this girl losing face. The fact she's done it in a triad run nightclub in front of the Dilo, who's that's the gang leader of the triad of this of this triad gang. That means big brother, right? You don't mess with this guy. No one messes with this guy. He deserves, through his gang affiliation, ultimate respect. And yet there's this, this girl, girl's not worth much in Asia. Sorry, I don't mean that offensively. No, I know. But in China, they get, if they'll get put in rooms and left to die. They call them the dying rooms, right? This is how little life can be valued in Asia. Wow. In Hong Kong, this is a, a girl, so yeah. you know, in a in a in an extremely macho shitty environment, not just she's a girl, she's a foreigner, so she's from Thailand, so that is even more a piece of shit to a Hong Kong triad. Thirdly, she's a prostitute, so she's got no social equity at all. Fourthly, she's been taking drugs. Yeah. It's just bad, Claire, you know. Wow. it's not it's a load of horseshit it's yeah she's just a beautiful little girl who's had a night out and she's overdone it right yeah. which is what i'm seeing yeah of course for people who are listening now what are these guys on about so the triad big brother the dilo looks down and he goes throw her in the alleyway <laughs> to him that's how you deal with this situation get her out of my club I don't want anything to do with the loss of face that I will suffer if someone in my club dies from a drug overdose. And there's me, kind of like bit of a naive Englishman, first aid trained, obviously, because I've been in the military going, hang on, I'm, I'm not throwing her in the alleyway. That's not how this works. I've got to save her life. This is what we do. You know, someone give me a jacket, keep the girl warm. And everyone's like, no, I'm giving you fuck all, mate. It yeah. really was weird, Claire. Yeah. Very, yeah, very weird. And um, in hindsight, what I would have done knowing what I know now is I'd have gone, all right, boss, I'd have chucked her over my shoulder, gone out and jumped in a taxi and gone to the hospital with her. That, that's how you would you, you deal with it. You're but still I, achieving I, it by getting her out the, the nightclub, but not yeah. necessarily the way they've asked you to deal with it. Yeah, I wasn't going to throw her in the alleyway. I mean, that was... I mean, that's almost some mafia shit, isn't it? You know, chuck yep. her in the alleyway, let her die out there. <laughs> she probably would have died out there if she hadn't got her dealt with. Yeah, she wasn't in a, she wasn't in a, it was a very strange thing. This English guy tried to help and he said, mate, can I help you? And I went, yeah, go, go to the 7-Eleven, you know, the corner shop, call an ambulance. And he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's thinking as if no one's called an ambulance yet. And mm -hmm. I, I said, mate, look around you. And he went. Wow. Yeah, I get it. He went, yeah, I get it, mate. Right. He looked around. He seen no one was going to help us. Nobody. All wow. superstitious about death. Wow. All that's the dialer there. He's told you to throw her out. So you do what? Wow. Uh, it was weird. Very weird. So reading people's horoscopes. Do you actually do that or were you just winging no. it in the book? No. <laughs> winging it. But on this particular night, I'm kind of in this flow state and, and, and I said I could guess people's star signs. 
And the first person went, well, what, what's, and we, we, I should say we're in a club waiting to go. I think we were waiting to go to the Brandon Block concert or his, his set that he was playing in Planet Hollywood. It's, and so I went, all right, Chris, what's my star sign? Sagittarius. And I went, whoa, <laughs> whoa. So I went, okay, what's mine? Aries. Whoa! I'll be honest, I felt like I could guess them. Wow. Like, I, I'm guessing that it was a coincidence. <laughs> and on the third try, someone went, all right, what's mine? I'm like, Virgo. Nope. Pisces. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That actually leads me quite nicely onto the next one. So is psychosis quite a common it's quite common with crystal method addiction. It's a fact. Because money is the ultimate root of evil. <laughs> I mean, you do keep the flames of God. Checkmate! Um, do people... Let's just say, yes, it goes hand in hand. Okay. It doesn't affect everybody. Okay. Everyone that takes crystal meth, I mean. Yeah. Um, I genuinely don't know why it affects some people and not others. Although what I will say is I took it for a very long time. In the end, I've taken it for months, Claire, pretty mm. much every day if I could. It's an incredibly strong chemical. And on top of that, I wasn't sleeping for days on end. Yeah. So I'm entering like a confusion. I mean, if even if you and I were to not sleep for five days now, I reckon at the end of the five days, we'd be starting to yeah. draw some wrong conclusions in life, right? You know. But, yeah. but this psychosis is a specific form of mental illness. It's not like you just hallucinate a bit because your eyes are a bit fuzzy, although that does happen as well. You get fixated on, so you can think of like a nursery rhyme comes in, and the next thing you know, you're writing this nursery rhyme out going, hang on, I can suss this, right? Why were we taught this in school? Right, Jack goes up the hill. What? Hmm, hmm, hang on. And I know it sounds like really sad and horrible and, but in your mind, you're you're getting somewhere with this. It's it, it's very bizarre, but mm. I think after taking all them chemicals into the fragile ecosystem of your brain, it just gets overrun and things start firing like the wrong way. Yeah. Um, not recommended. No, definitely not. So getting to about three fifty, page three fifty, I've written your poor dad. You'd called him and you'd rang him to say there was a conspiracy, but you couldn't say what it was over the phone. Um, you then started to talk about jumping off a crane, but on your way there, you bought a guitar for 300 Hong Kong. You yeah. put your last 150 in a charity box and then you put your prized shark tooth wrapped in a page and put it on a bin to prove to your, prove to the cult that you, you were worthy or something. I was like, your poor dad. Yeah. Blimey. Sorry, Dad. The wheels really came off then, didn't they? <laughs> Jesus. 
it's it's crazy that your mind had got to the point where it really thought if it could achieve those things yeah it would become clear it's all actually quite explainable it's all for for a reason i mean yeah so i'm chatting to my dad in the uk and I'm trying to convey the fact that things ain't right here in Hong Kong, but I can't tell you why, Dad, because if it's this grander global conspiracy, then surely they're listening on the telephone line. My dad's listening to it. And and you got to remember, I only called the guy five times in a year and a half. It wasn't... So he gets his call out the blue... And I'm trying to talk like in a secret code that I can understand. And I'm assuming he, but to them, it's all just gobbledygook. Um, and yeah, it, it just become messy, Claire. I can't really, you know, my, my family thought maybe I've been kidnapped. Wow. Blimey. They thought they, in my, that's why my dad's going, have you got your passport, son? I'm like, yeah, well, uh, your passport, dad. Why, 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 why wouldn't I? What are you trying to say? You keep your passport, keep your passport. Right. My, dad, my dad's thought I'd been kidnapped. Wow. Right? Hence why I'm talking like in code. Got it, that makes sense. Code, yeah. Because there's this conspiracy going on and I don't know who's in it and who's not. And um, The going for a walk thing, this is the chapter in the book, it's called Going for a Walk, was just an utterly bizarre part of my life. Yeah. Very, very sad, Claire, really. Yeah. In my mind, I, I knew what I was doing. I, I can't even, I won't even pretend to try to explain it for people listening now. It, it just won't make sense. But you, I think a lot of people feel rejected in their lives anyway, especially those of us that have, have fallen foul of um, addiction problems, is getting that sense of, not feeling rejected oh i can smoke this i feel fine right so i'm going to smoke some more and i'm going to smoke some more and ironically you end up as the person that actually is rejected not the one that you thought is rejected and so i i felt like rejected by all the bosses that fired me i felt that i'd become like a bit of a laughing stock in the in the in the in the in the nightclub community, which which I sort of had, you know, that people didn't understand I was mentally unwell. They just thought I'd started to just be fucking weird. Um, and it was everything that you read in that book, what in whatever form it comes in, is just me trying to be a nice person because that's who I am. Yeah, you know, that's all it is. That uh, I thought this great crystal meth thing was my, I thought it was the, my answer in life. Yeah. Wow, I just thought. It probably was for the first couple of months because it was a lot of fun and made you really sociable and yeah. gave you a great time. And exactly. Gave you these extra yeah. and skills and then the wheels gradually came off. Yeah, had I had some restraint, which you, you, you just don't have because addiction's out of your... It's just out of your control at that time in those early stages that you, you, it, it, it you know, it, it's calling the shots, but had I had some restraint, it, things might've been different. Not saying that I wish they were, but, yeah. um, so that day I went with, the, I went out for a walk. I thought, how can I, 
how can I prove to people that I don't give a shit what they think? Oh, jump off a crane in the harbour. Mm. That's what we did in the Marines. We all did macho shit. And then on that journey, it, 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 it just become really sad, Claire. No. You know, it become, I became lone. I felt lonely in myself for the first time. I mean, I, usually I was just too high to feel anything, right? Other than just brilliant. Yeah. Now I'm actually like starting to feel sorry for myself. I'm, I'm walking and I'm walking into the old part of Hong Kong and, and I'm, I'm coming across these bizarre little situations that would make an amazing film. Just that walk in itself would just, it, 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 you know, I mean, I stopped to play football with these kids and like I knew I was safe with them. I knew they weren't going to judge me. They yeah. didn't care. I'm just some guaylo, you know, some foreign devil. Stopped to play football with them. And we just play football. Um, I, I had it obsessively in my head. I took them a boogie box with me. And it didn't have any batteries in, though. So I kept meaning to buy batteries. I think I even went in a shop and bought the batteries. And I forgot I didn't put them in the thing and then I finally found that shop and it's selling a guitar and I only had about 40 quid left in my pocket so about 400 Hong Kong dollars and I looked at this guitar and there's this beautiful flowery pattern in, in, the, in, in the sound hole in the, in the sound box and it was like it was calling to me right buy this i will give you all your answers so i bought it and then i'm next i'm walking along with a guitar in my hand right <laughs> it's oh if you'd have got to the crane what would you have done with the guitar <laughs> well it just got it, it just it it was yeah it was uh, interesting let's just say that I think in the end of the book, I think you cried quite a few times towards the end because I think you just, you were exhausted, completely exhausted. Yeah, it's starting to filter through Yeah, that something's not right to me now. It's not, this isn't working anymore. Mm. Um, isn't fun anymore. It's not the great fun, this crystal meth stuff that it was in the beginning. I'm not the wonderful person that I thought I'd become. I'm, I just can't seem to get it right. I've lost all these jobs for whatever reason. Some were my fault, some weren't. But I've no longer got a roof over my head for... I don't know where I'm going to work next. And, and I don't know... In, it's like inside you, Claire, you haven't asked for any of this. I know your actions have caused it. I'm not trying to deny that. But your addictive actions are caused it. An addictive psychology you're not in control of. It controls you. So I've got this thing controlling me that's driven me to this. Some of which was great fun. I'm not saying that I didn't like relish it a lot of the time, but it's driven you to this place where you've just got nothing left and you're a shell of a person and, yeah. and, and uh, you're living in a hovel. Like 
what whatever you might think no human being deserves to be like that and it was at those moments i guess i was having nervous breakdowns and i found myself just crying out loud and yeah wondering what is it all about i don't i don't i don't know so the last the last question of the book and then i've got four more after that um so i wrote saying goodbye to everyone and then standing on the airplane steps when you turn around to take your last look at Hong Kong. How did that feel? Yeah, everything was incremental, Claire. I never expected to leave Hong Kong. I never expected it. I loved it. I just loved it. I, if I could have been a Hong Kong trial, I would have accepted that. Oh, I, I love the food. I love the language. I love the culture. I, I, well, I thought I did, you know, I obviously only knew it from a, as an outsider. Um, I love being a doorman in the nightclub district. I, I, I love being, yeah, you know, I mean, I driven by my Eagle back then, wasn't I? So I was, I was just like a semi important person in that area. And, and I, it wasn't the importance that, bothered me it was he's like I could be nice to people and they'd be like oh that's that nice doorman he yeah. let us in for free the other day you know and I used to just let everyone in for free I used to get caught out by my manager and I wrote Chris that guy just came in without paying who's he and I'm like oh yeah he he paid earlier don't you remember oh right, okay okay it's like it wasn't it's just I wanted to you know show my friendship to everyone and yeah. um and so I never intended to leave. I didn't want to leave. It just get got in that position that even though I was really unwell, even I knew at that point that I had no money, no roof over my head, no job. I wasn't in a position to be employed. Things just, nothing was going right. And my old man, very kindly, put an airline ticket on his credit card because we're not a rich family. And he said, right, son, let me just give you this scenario. Say I bought you a ticket home tomorrow. What would you do? And I was like, oh, dad, I don't know. He's like, right, I'll call you back. Just, 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 just. And when he called me back, he said, yeah, I've just got your ticket home. And wow. he said, just get you on your feet, son. And I was like, yeah, yeah, just get me on my, okay. And that was it. I think it was the idea that I was just going to come home for a bit, get myself sorted out and then go. And that is honestly how I saw it. Yeah. I honestly thought, right, just touch down in the UK, eat a bit of food. Get There's no crystal food. meth in the UK. Get down to gym again, put some weight on, get a flight back out. Get, yeah. you know, it, it, yeah. So with respect to the actual getting on the plane, I didn't, I didn't want any of my book to be negative, Claire, because it's not who I am. So I, I accept responsibility for everything I've ever done, even though I wasn't in control of my mind in Hong Kong, my, my addiction was, right? I still, I, I accept the experience. I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm, glad I had it mm -hmm. uh, I don't I wouldn't have swapped it for the world in fact mm -hmm. you know, if, 
I've got the perfect life, Claire. You know, I've got a very happy outlook on life now. When I do what I want to do, when I want to do it with the people I love. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have that if I hadn't had my Hong Kong experience. So I wanted to write that book in a way that people didn't think it's another feel sorry for me memoir because mm-hmm. I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate this thing that people think it's negative to have life experiences mm-hmm. or that they have to apologize or that it's, oh, that was my life back then. But look at me now. It's like, no, look at me. I'm, I'm no different. You know, mm-hmm. I, still do stu- I still do stupid things. Uh, I think some things would probably surprise people knowing what they've read in my memoirs. I don't make rules for my life. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit better now at keeping the lid on when I need to. Um, and I love life. I love it. And when I when I got on that plane, Claire, I, I wanted it to be like a, yes, I've had a great time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Hong Kong. I'll be back. Right? Yeah, <laughs> love it. Didn't know I wouldn't be back for quite a while, but that was that was uh, you know that was it, and that's why the book's funny. I hope it's funny. Have you ever been back to Hong Kong since? Yeah, I went back in uh, for my book launch in two thousand. Did you? Wow. First of all, in Hong Kong, I didn't think you would ever come here. If you've read the book, and if you've read the book, you'll know why I say that. Uh, Chris sent me his manuscript from England, and usually I wouldn't publish a book by anyone who wasn't living in Hong Kong. But his story was so unique and so gripping, and yet and so well written. And so well written. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, even though it's about it's about elements, uh, it's about crime, it's about violence, about addiction, about triads, about you know the, the grimiest streets in Wan Chai. At the same time, it's actually very charming, and I, I was I was I was hooked on the book, and so I published it. And I'm very glad I did. So please welcome Chris Thrall. Wow. Uh, unreal. It was unreal. And it was highs and lows and, and quite nice highs and lows. I mean, yeah. the very first morning I awoke there, I stayed with my publisher up in the New Territories and ate that morning or whatever. I was on the underground next station Chimsha Choi passengers may change to the west rail line at east Chimsha Choi station and I literally retraced my life in Hong Kong wow. I went to the first place I lived with Vance up in um, Mong Kok in the, in the rat infested outhouse this is it Mong Kok, the most heavily populated square kilometer on the planet. And that doorway over there behind me, that's King uh, Tak Mansion. That's where I lived for the first six, maybe even seven months of my stay here with my business partner Vance. It's unreal. I spoke to the doorman on the building. I said, look, I, I, I used to live here. Could I have a look inside? He's like, yeah, go on. Oh. Went in and I saw the old building I used to live in. It was all collapsed now. It had all been like pulled down, right? But I could, oh, see, wow. I could see the pipework in the walls where the rats used to 
come out when I was asleep. Um, then I went down to just everywhere, Kowloon Park, where I used to smoke weed in the bamboo groves and yeah. Chunkin Mansion, where I used to hang around with a ghetto community and buy, buy my crystal meth and stuff. And Okay, we're outside the infamous Chunkin Mansions. Hello. It's a really good job. I went to Pum Fat, uh, Gong Wan Hong, I call it in the book, right? Gong Wan Hong, the Chinese company I used to work in. I went to that building, the actual office. It all been, again, it had all been pulled down. It was a different place. Wow. But I used to see the door where me and um, Gary King used to go up on the roof and smoke a joint at lunchtime. Love it. Um, Gary, if you're out there, hello, mate. We're, we're still in touch. Brilliant. Um, I went on that walk. I went on that walk and it was just a bit sad. And I thought, God, the last time I stood here, I was mentally unwell in an extremist like form almost. Yeah. And then I went back into Wan Chai and uh, I'm like, right, should I go in that club? That club where I work for the triads and now I've written a book about it. I don't know if they know. <laughs> I don't know if they're bothered. Um, I thought, yeah, let's go in it, right? And it was just weird. I walked up to the, I walked up to the steps, and there was a, a guy just like Chu Chai, a big stocky triad on the door. All right, mate, cover charge, and you know, he's like, love it. Just walk straight down in. You should have done the um the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there is that and i walked in and 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 I spoke to people, Claire, I, I spoke to Filipino working girls and I'm like, listen, have you ever heard of the foreign triad? And they were like, nah. I spoke to a guy that had uh, lived in Hong Kong for like 30 years and he'd always worked in the gangland, you know, the, the nightclub. Did. And I'm like, have you heard of the fight? And he's like, no. Nope. Wow. But like I say, the only reason I've got that connection to the fact that I think it could possibly exist it is because of the the newspaper article I mentioned which is now now in a book wow. um so yeah it was but the saddest part sorry I go on but right. this was really it's not often I get sad Claire but I went back to that old building where I went mad Mm -hmm. and 
I just wanted to see it. I just wanted to like go up to the front door and maybe even knock on it. So I used to live here. Could I? I mean, it's where I went mad, right? Yeah. Well, one of the places I went mad and there were there was blood splats on the walls. It was a weird old building. It was just weird. And um, I couldn't find it. Oh. And I'd been looking on Google Earth, to be honest. I'd been looking for like about five years since I started writing my book because I used to know I lived, uh, let's just say, five blocks from the nightclub because I used to run to work. I was always late. And there was a, 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 a an overpass. So I always remember my building was on the other side of the overpass. And I used to look at Google Maps and go, but that's not my building. It's not. Well, I realised what it was. They pulled it down. Oh, right. OK. So I got there and the one place that it would just have been surreal to see it. It was gone. It was a skyscraper there and it's place now. And I just thought, do you know, I'd, I'd pay like a thousand pound now just to be able to go back in that building. Just just to smell the smell, the old musty smell that those old buildings had didn't have any glass in the windows it was that old this building it did in the flats but not not in the stairwells it just had iron work in the windows and that building had weathered thousands of hong kong typhoons and there was about a thousand tv aerials on the roof that old just all laid on top of each other, like in a forest, like leaves in a forest, thousands of TV aerials. And uh, yeah, it wasn't there. And ah, I took it on the chin, but mm-hmm. that would have been a special moment. But yeah. Yeah. And it ended up at one point, if I just show you up here. Where I was living in this old building that you can see to the right. It's been pulled down now. This is uh, a new build, which is probably just as well. Because in 1996, I was shinning across a cable between these two buildings. Um, and when I got out there, you can say I had a moment of reality. Have you ever caught up with anyone or remained friends with anyone from your Hong Kong experience? Yes, so I'm still friends. Uh, Gary King, mm-hmm. uh, who I work with in Gunwine Hong, the beautiful Kerry, who is now a, a media celebrity, very big in Australia. Uh, old Ron, Ron Dennison in my book. Nick in real life, he's living with uh, his wife, Chinese wife Sarah, still in Hong Kong. Uh, Lee Ames yeah. now runs a bar in Thailand. He was the last person you lived with, wasn't he? Uh, no, that was Sam was the last person. Okay. Um, Sam I never hooked up with. He had cancer when I left Hong Kong, so well. I don't know if he'd still be alive now. Roy, I think in my book I called him Ray. I changed the name slightly there was the manager of the Big Apple, so my favourite nightclub in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're friend. We're still friends. Uh, he's read my book and he remembers it all, you know, very well. Fonts. Ah, uh, oh, I wrote about this in. Um, I haven't read the next two yet because I didn't want to get confused between the yeah, books. Yeah, I so wrote about this in my memoir, on. State of Mind, Claire. Okay. You don't have so, to answer it then. I could ask you that question another no, time. No, it, it, it's, it's not a game changer. It's just very sad. I, I'm a great believer in you need to apologise when you need to apologise. And so I called Vance about probably three years after Hong Kong. I was still really unwell. I called one of our old acquaintances over there, Amy Wong. She said, oh, Mr. Lee, yeah, he's runs this company now. Here's his number. And so I called him. I said, Vance, it's Chris. Ah, Chris, how are you doing? When you come back Hong Kong? I've uh, got this company now. When you come back, I make you manager, right? And it was just, and I, said, I said, Vance, I'm just ringing to say sorry. Oh, bless. He said, ah, no problem. You know, I said, I was really ill. I was really ill, mate. He said, nah, no problem. When you come back Hong Kong, you know, we make the business, right? Oh, and bad. so I wrote Eating Smoke every day, thinking of that day when I'd go, yeah. go back to Hong Kong. Wow. Vance is like my brother, my best friend, my mentor. I, I love the man, you know, I respect him. He was just a very cool Chinese guy. And every day I just look forward to going there. I go, Vance, I've written a book about us. And, and so I booked my flight to Hong Kong for the book launch. And I called him up. And uh, secretary answered. And I said, uh, Lee San, hi. Lee San, hi, Bindua. Like, where's Mr. Lee? She said, oh, sorry. I said, I said, what, what, what? He said, Mr. Lee dead. Oh, Jesus. I was like, what? Yeah, him die, heart attack. Wow. And I'm like, oh. Wow. I said, is this someone I can speak to about it? And they went, oh, okay, just, just give me your number. And so I gave him my number. And then a few hours later, I got a phone call. It's his brother-in-law. Um, who was a, a like a director in this this company that he'd started, and he said, "Yeah, I'm really sorry, uh, Mr. Lee got sick. Um, he tried to go to the Chinese herbalists, and because he's a workaholic, Vance was a workaholic. He just would never stop working. It's what what he did, and I can just picture him not being well, but trying to take some herbs or something, and." Uh, he had heart disease. So when I got over there, I called Lim. Her actual name is Lam, but in my book it was Lim. And I said, Miss Lim, it's Chris. I used to live with you in Moncock. Um, I've got a book launch. So I rocked up for my book launch. And there was Lam outside the bookshop going. <laughs> and, and it was... Amazing, Claire. Just amazing. You know, we spent a day together. We went out to Lama Island. We went to see where Vance's ashes were scattered. And and um, what a mad life, isn't it? Okay. 
I begin to see less of, of winds as the weeks flew by, as my loneliness increased. Okay, have you ever replaced your much-loved Rolex, which I think you have? Yay! <laughs> it was a silly thing. It, it wasn't ego. It wasn't like material, nothing like that. I was I was in Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Um, I was just traveled backpacking around the world, and and I met this uh, Australian girl, and I said to her, or we were like we'd hooked up for the you know that part of our backpack, and I said, should we go to Raffles Hotel? It's really famous, mm. and we went there, and we had the Singapore Sling, which is the famous Raffles cocktail, mm-hmm. and as we were walking around one of the like verandas, there's a Rolex shop. <laughs> and I looked in the window and lo and behold there's my exact watch the sea dweller that I'd hopped in Hong Kong not not the exact watch but the same model and I thought hang on credit card hmm. oh, and then <laughs> the difference was now in my maturity is I put the watch on I didn't even look at it Claire yeah it wasn't the same thing. It, it, I don't know why. Right, I'll go ask you one more question. <coughs> so I've written, so your mindset of living one life, and if you live it right, that's all you need. Was this because you've realised that quite a few times that could have been it for you? Um, no. Okay. It's more that, you know, when I spent that, in my book, 40 Nights, that's my period in the wilderness, Claire, which isn't a bad thing. We all need a bit of time out, as difficult as it might seem at the time. But what I did think is that was 18 months of inactivity. The furthest I travelled was to the pub to go and buy drugs. Didn't even buy it. I used to buy a half of lager. I wasn't even interested in drinking. I expanded my horizon slightly. Started going to Belgium, of all places, to smuggle tobacco. <laughs> wow, got good chocolate over there. Another story again. It's quite funny, actually. I used to drive to Belgium. I've been to Belgium about eighty times. <laughs> if you look at my passport, you probably think I've got family in Belgium. But here's the thing: after that eighteen months, I wanted to make up for lost time. I looked at my life and thought, right, what have you done that you've enjoyed and that's good? Well, I've travelled. Mm-hmm. What can you do now that will be enjoyable? Well, I can travel more. So I just made it a subconscious thing in my mind to travel the world. Good thing to do. Yeah, well, I thought, do you know what? I've got mates now that are in 50 grand a year jobs. they got Mercedes. My mate had a purple Mercedes. Um, they've probably all got 2.4 kids and a a nice lawn, <laughs> bonfires on a sun. I didn't have any of that, Claire. I had nothing. But I thought, but had they travelled the whole world? I know it sounds a bit, this, this is just how my mind worked at the time. That could be my thing. Mm-hmm. So I travelled the whole world. I did all the adventure sports that I wanted to do. I learned to dive. I learned to fly planes. I learned to skydive. I, I, I love traveling. So it was a real one hedonistic adventure, really. It was amazing. Brilliant. 
Uh, got in a few scrapes, got in some serious life and death stuff at some points, but hey ho. And then off the back of that kind of mindset, I then wrote my books. I then got my degree. I then um, had a beautiful family. I then just found a career that I love. And when I look back, it's just because I decided to do that. Maybe for the wrong reasons initially, I don't know. I just figured traveling could be my thing. So yeah. when I tell people now, you get one life, I'm serious. You get one life. I, I lost 18 months of mine. I didn't lose it, but societal terms, I was a layabout druggie. I wanted the rest of my life to count. Yeah. You know, I wanted every day thereabouts. I would account as ticking something off the bucket list yeah. or being able to relax in myself and be happy with what I've achieved. And, and, yeah. and that's how it's been. So how do you decide what to do next? I know I've added another question in there. So I'm, I'm just a bit random. It, it just comes to me. And I, I don't, there's always a, a massive pool of stuff to do there just is you can skydive you can learn to fly you can run marathons you can learn bushcraft you can take up knitting you can read books you can uh enter the marathon of the sands which i'm doing this year wow. you can run the length for the uk you can go backpacking uh you can go letterboxing on dartmoor or whatever it is where you are you can run the seven peaks or the 12 hills challenge mm -hmm. you can do stuff for charity that there's just there's an endless reservoir of stuff to do and all i do is just think oh, i'll do that this year isn't there's no more thought goes into it than that a former Royal Marines commando from Devon has tonight reached Land's End after running all the way from John O'Groats. Chris Thrall has run an ultra marathon every day since the 1st of September and has made the 999-mile journey to raise money for a veterans charity. Spotlight's Andrea Ormsby saw him cross the finish line. He's explored 80 countries on seven continents, backpacked through North, South and Central America, caught piranhas in the Amazon, swum with bull sharks in Belize and holds a world record for firewalking. This is Chris Thrall's latest adventure. Yeah, it's up there with the, with the rest of them. I've been lucky over the years to you know, try my hand at a lot of, a lot of different adventures. Um, I've been scuba diving in the Antarctic, fly planes, uh, jump out of them, and of course uh, I joined the Marines when I was 18. Chris has done 37 ultramarathons every day from John O'Groats to Land's End to raise money for a charity which is close to his heart. Words fail. I mean, to, to do what he's done has been incredible and the condition his body's in because he's got wrecked knees, other problems that we all know about. And you just run out of words to describe how much you admire his effort, how much it means to, to so many people because he's inspiring a lot of people who are in the same boat with PTSD. He's done it, a warm welcome back and around £15,000 raised to help other veterans in need. Andrea Ormsby, BBC Spotlight, Land's End. Almost um, too much to do, isn't there? 
Yeah, as far as the books go, well, there's always another book that can be written. No state of mind is about running the length of the country, but I could run talk about what it's like to teach yourself how to swim to do an Ironman or... or... Morning, team. I hope you can hear me. We are down here at the sensational Lido pool. Yeah, so official kind of kick off thingy me bob whatever at 10 just i just want to get in the water for the minute and start getting some distance done i've got uh david goggins book to listen to on my my underwater headphones so as david goggins says you can't hurt me <laughs> today is a good day audiobooks now so that's something that that will be this year I will have to do the audiobooks so I've got to learn how to talk into one of these things and <laughs> it's all stuff that I enjoy learning the podcast is just unfolds as you go there's always people to speak to and I get a lot of guests say oh Chris I'm I'm sorry I'm not Robbie Witt and I'm like I don't want you to be Mm. no disrespect to rob mm -hmm. i i want people anyone who's got life experience come and talk to me definitely well they're but, all really interesting we've watched quite a few of them who have you got coming on your podcast over the next month who have we got to look forward to um last night i chatted with griff lee griffiths who ran a decompression chamber for divers in thailand okay Wow. We chatted all about the dangers of partying in Thailand and diving afterwards and, and, and the, the murders that take place over there. Not, not Fortunately, not few and far between, but when it goes wrong in Thailand, it really goes wrong. It's quite similar to Hong Kong in that respect, isn't it? I've been to Thailand a few times. Yeah. It's yeah, when it goes off over there, it goes off in a way that you just never could have envisaged. And it's usually big, you know. Um, first okay. time I was ever in Hong Kong, I walked out the pub. Was it 21 people were crushed to death in the street? Yeah. I think it was 21 people, 22 maybe. Uh, it was New Year, 1992 or 93. Everyone had rushed out to celebrate New Year. And, and uh, yeah, it's just weird. You don't yeah. sort you don't of... get that in the UK at yeah, all. Yeah, you just don't. Wow, exciting stuff then. So shall I leave you to it then? After reading your book twice, thought it was amazing. <laughs> I will now move on to 49. Oh, wow. Look, look. <laughs> uh, Synchronised book holding. I like it. <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough. Welcome. <laughs> I mean, you've said things to me about the book that, that I hear, you know, many people write to me and say, Chris, I never read a book before, but I read yours like in one go. It sounds a bit cliche and I probably don't really accept it in a way that I should, but the amount of people that say it's the best book they've ever read. Yeah, I loved it. And I, I can't really absorb that. Genuinely, you know, I loved it. Really enjoyed it. Good, really. I'm not a massive reader. I read sometimes, but not a massive reader. But when I saw that you had it and I picked it out, I couldn't put it down. 
honestly. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being Yes, here. much love to you and Chris, Claire. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. When I get my head sorted out from this 200 mile run, we'll do the draw and we'll yes. pick a winner for our, for our day out and then we'll come Brilliant. and drive some cars really fast. to it yes brilliant all right then well great chatting see you later okay Doodaloo.